Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Well, hello, everybody. You made it here. How are you? It is almost Thanksgiving. So what can I say? Today's going to be kind of a heavy show. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from or what you think, it's hard to talk about the Mideast, especially right now. Make no mistake, it's a complex and difficult conversation and has been for generations. But because of social media, I think things have only grown more difficult, more isolating. People are angry, heartbroken, and exhausted. And we need to have real conversation. We need to understand each other. We need to come together with peace in our hearts. Today, my guest is Allison Josephs, who I met through social media a couple years ago. Her screen name is Jew in the City. Her platform is representation and education as to who the Jewish people truly are. She has done this long before the events of October 7th, and I thought maybe this would be a good place to start. Here we are having a conversation, myself and Allison Joseph. Well, hi, everybody. It is me, Rosie O'Donnell, talking to Allison Josephs. Hello, Allison. It's very nice to meet you sort of here on the, on the Zoom. Likewise. Great to meet you as well. Yeah. How long have you been online? And, and do you remember when we first connected? Was it like, what, a couple of years ago, was it? It was a couple of years ago. Uh, you were posting about my unorthodox life. And since my nonprofit, Jew in the City, handles depictions of Jews in media, and our founding mission was specifically to look at orthodox depictions in media, um, I had some opinions <laughs> about uh, that show. Yes, indeed. Now, were you raised Orthodox yourself? I was not. Um, and the interesting thing is that I was really raised to hate Orthodox Jews, to mm. uh, judge Orthodox Jews. Um, I was raised to be a proud Jew, um, but that was kind of more like culturally Jewish and, you know, some holidays and a sense of 
that the Jewish people should continue because we've been through so much. But um, I grew up in New Jersey. We would go to Manhattan maybe once a month out to dinner, out to a Broadway show. Mm. And I would see the Orthodox just kind of looking so weird, so different, so extreme, so backwards. Um, and I felt kind of ashamed of them, actually. Um, and then and I, did you did you feel ashamed of them because you were taught that, or did you feel it because they were just so other? So I think I was taught that. Um, my father took care of Hasidic Jews when he did his residency at Mount Sinai, and. I remember some of my earliest memories in life was him coming home from the hospital and saying they're dirty, they're smelly, they're ignorant, they can't speak English. Imagine that perspective on any other minority group. I mean, it would be pretty shocking and bigoted, but because we're Jewish, it was kind of like we can look down on the wrong kind of Jews. We're the good kind of Jews, and those are the bad kind of Jews. And I will tell you that media only reinforced everything my father taught us. Because media essentially, both news media and fictional media, picks up on the crooks, creeps, and extremists of the community. Right. Would you say for every minority or or would you say just exclusively for Jewish people? I think media has been damaging for every minority for you know most of the time. What there has been in recent years, thankfully, is a shift now for more nuance, more understanding, um, and understanding that continued negative depictions leads to danger um, in terms of how that minority fares in the world. Um, and that's, you know, that's the work that my nonprofit is doing now for the Jewish community. So I guess what I'll say is that I think there's been a lot of progress for other communities. We're certainly not there yet. I'm sure if you speak to you know any person from a different minority group, they will be able to flag for you what they still don't like about their depictions or the representation. And I also think that they'll be able to point to real progress made. Now, your dad was uh, is a doctor. Yeah. And he would only use that kind of language about Orthodox Jews. He wouldn't use it about other minorities around you. Correct, because he was an open-minded person who didn't prejudge. (laughs) So uh, did you ever say to him, I find that offensive? No, because I agreed with him. I I I had no um, people in my life to counter that narrative because I had never interacted with them. So my father sort of set the stage as to what I believed and then, you know, newspaper headlines and, you know, TV shows, books, movies reinforce those ideas. And there were no real person examples to counter those ideas. Now, there are some wonderful uh, depictions of Orthodox life on TV on um, now. There are much more than there used to be. There's not only My Orthodox Life, which was kind of a reality show and sensationalized and, and they were looking for characters to, to, uh, I almost said exploit, but there you go, yeah. to exploit. And, um, but do you know the names that I'm thinking of of those Israeli shows with, uh, that I loved? Unorthodox was one of them, I believe, right? You're thinking of Shtisel and, yes. and Orthodox. So, so look, Shtisel, and there was really the Shtisel mania that took the world. And I think the reason that people went so wild over Shtisel was it was because the first time we were seeing um, the humanity beneath the beards, beneath the wigs, within this community that seemed like a world away. And I appreciate that 
Schissel did show the humanity of Haredi characters. It was excellent writing, excellent acting, um, and you did get to know them. And that was huge. That was groundbreaking. My complaint with Schissel is um, it's the most second most insular Orthodox community in Israel. Um, and what I find is that for Orthodox Jews like me, that you could call me centrist Orthodox or modern Orthodox, we don't really ever get depicted and people don't really know the difference between us and the people living in the second most insular community in Israel. And one of my good friends who's a Reformed Jew who saw me become observant in high school, she asked me what I thought of it. And I said, it's a great show. I'm enjoying it. It's a little extreme. And she said, huh, funny coming from you. I said, because you think I'm living just a life? She said, yeah, pretty much. And so my husband and I are Ivy League educated. We travel the world. Um, my kids are exposed to all different types of people. And we're both very devout. And we've also taught our children to understand that everybody contains a divine spark. And not everybody comes to the same conclusion. People have different life experiences. They come to different outcomes. And and we're here to, you know, to, to live and sort of see the the humanity and the the positive qualities of the diverse tapestry of, you know, of mankind. Right. And how did you go from being a cultural Jew uh, to an Orthodox Jew? How, what, what inspired that transition in you? Yeah. So, um, first of all, I did not know that such a thing was possible. I kind of thought that the normal Jews like me were born normal and the weird Jews were born that way. Wow. Um, but what ended up happening was that, and there's a term for what I did, which is called, uh, to be a balchuva, a master of return. Um, when I was eight years old, a father in my public school had a mental breakdown. I walked into my fourth grade homeroom in 1988. Um, my classmates were crying, huddled around their desks. I immediately knew something was off found out that the night before Angela's father had killed both children and himself. And oh so my God. I was going to a triple funeral that week at not even nine years old. Um, and sort of as all this heaviness of death was sitting on my child-like mind, um, I realized that what's going to happen when I die, I will end my time in this world uh, at some point. Um, and then I thought to the question before that, which was, why are we here in the first place? Mm. And being only eight years old, I assume my parents must know the answer to that. They brought three daughters into the world. So over a bagel breakfast, you know, probably the Sunday after the funerals, I said, by the way, why are we alive? And my parents just stared at me. And it was this devastating realization that they literally had no plan. They had no wisdom to share. And I started asking other people in my world, and the response I basically got was, nobody knows, don't think about it. Hmm. And the problem was that like the cat was already out of the bag and I couldn't stop thinking about the thing that everybody told me not to think about. So, You as know, it's so interesting. That happened to me when I was that age as well with the Vietnam War, hmm. that I would watch it on TV because I'm 61 and we would see it as we were eating dinner, these horrific images Um and my father, I started to cry. I would cry when I watched the news. And he said, you can't watch the news anymore. Go to your room. You're not allowed to watch the news. That was the answer, right? Hmm. To, to a little eight-year-old girl, uh, you know, who, who was, was scared and, and whose mother was dying and was, hmm. you know, it, it, it was a traumatic event at that time that made me question kind of everything and, and kind of laid down my moral compass. Mm-hmm. 
for me. Were your parents supportive of your desire to go towards these these bigger ideas at such a young age? Were, when did you make the switch to knowing that an orthodox life might be the one that, that inspired and, and filled your heart? Yes. Yeah, so um, it was about seven years of insomnia and off and on panic attacks. Mm. Um, as long as I was distracted, I was the life of the party, the straight A student, everything was great. When the distractions would stop, I would sort of go into this point of panic. And I've learned more about mental health uh, sort of during COVID. And I, I realized now that I was disassociating when I would sort of go to that point of will be somewhere or nowhere for eternity. I would feel myself flying out of my body, which only reconfirmed this idea that nothing here is really real. And I would just be really terrorized, terrified in this loop of of thoughts. And and although I felt the love and protection of my parents, they weren't big enough to stand up to eternity next to me. And their protection and their, you know, um, what they provided for us and it it wasn't enough because I was sort of coming face to face with, um, <laughs> you know, time and space. So they were supportive of my being, I think, a precocious uh, thinker. Mm. The reason that it ended up getting to going back to my heritage was they sent us to an after-school Hebrew high after our bat mitzvahs. Um, they didn't really care for us to become more. Excuse me. Obs- did you did you go to uh, a public school, a private school, a Jewish school? A- what did so you attend? What school? I attended a public school um, until eighth grade and then a private school for high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while I was in both public and private school to sort of supplement our Jewish you know, knowledge and community, they sent us to this Hebrew high um, after our bat mitzvahs. And it was there that for the first time in my life, I got to meet real live actual Orthodox Jews. So no more headlines, no more negative messages from my father, but my own personal interactions and what I discovered was that these people were living these really meaningful and positive lives, and they were not the weirdos that I had been led to believe they are. Let me clarify. There are still some weirdos. I'm not going <laughs> to vouch for the entire community. There's for sure weirdos, um, but there's weirdos everywhere. I spent my first Shabbos, my first Sabbath um, with one of my teachers. Um, in my mind, he was coming from a shtisl community, even though he lived in one of the biggest modern Orthodox communities in the tri-state area. I couldn't quite parse the difference. But what I'll tell you is that my soul was yearning for what they had, what I saw in their home. When I studied Torah in depth in his class, there was something that I had really been longing for um, and my soul felt complete. And sort of the follow-up point to this exposure to this new way of life was in a tropical rainforest in Hawaii when I was 16, during that year of sort of exploration and opening up my mind, I saw a tree that I was convinced had been painted on by just some artists in the forest. And when I looked to the top and saw the color went all the way up this huge chute, it's called rainbow eucalyptus, um, something inside of me transformed. I like to call it a moment of clarity, or for a split second, I delved one layer deeper into perception, and I discovered unity running throughout all of existence. And in that moment, when I felt this unity surround me, I suddenly realized this is what they must mean when they say God. And Mm. I was an agnostic, an atheist, certainly not a believer before that, but sort of happening upon this moment in Hawaii and sort of being filled with something so big and majestic, um, something shifted inside me forever. And once I sort of named that feeling, I thought, let me look into my heritage to see if I can delve deeper 
into that experience of God to get that feeling back again. That's intense. You were 16 years old. I will, if I was thinking about the end of my life at eight, I had to get to enlightenment by 16, you know? Mm. Now, what was your family's response? Were they, when, when you, you know, you come and you say, I, I know God, I, I feel a spiritual center, um, and I'd like to, to follow this. Your family was accepting and. Nope. <laughs> no. Um, so, uh, what I'll tell you is that my mother had the strongest sense about Judaism. She had a religious grandmother and grandfather that basically only spoke Yiddish. And although they couldn't communicate, you know, in English, um, she had fond memories of their relationship to Judaism. And so she was more supportive. I was a bit of a nerdy teenager. So if I was acting up and my mother wanted to ground me, she would say, no Shabbos for you this week, little girl. Like that was literally, I got that Shabbos was your punishment. canceled. My punishment was getting Shabbos canceled. Um, my father thought that I was becoming one of these extremists that he was taking care of that, again, he completely judged, I think very unfairly. And so at all of 16 years old, I said, if you think that I'm ruining my life and the life of your unborn grandchildren, then please save me from this cult. But here's the deal. You don't get an opinion until you learn something because ignorant people shouldn't weigh in on in, on uh, debates. So learn something, meet who I meet, come for Shabbos where I go away for Shabbos. And once you've educated yourself, let's engage in a debate. He didn't want to do it, didn't want to do it, and eventually realized that he does have to learn to properly debate me. So he began to study to spite me. And after about a year of studying and experiencing Shabbos for himself, he was almost 50 years old. He said, you were right and I was wrong, and now it's time to play catch up. And he and my mother and both of my sisters all became Orthodox. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. What a strong manifester you are. You were able to sort of change the essence of your whole family at a young my, age. And my parents have 14 uh, Orthodox grandchildren. Um, and again, we've, we're all living in this space now of very devout, very committed you know, to this spiritual way of life and also holding space for the larger world and you know, our role in, in making it better and sort of understanding the complexities and nuances of humanity. Had you at 16 or even at eight experienced anti-Semitism yourself? For sure. Um, so my parents um, raised us in a town with almost no Jews. Um, and maybe in first grade, our neighbor across the street, Larry, um, said to us, I'm speaking your language, um, called me a Jewish jerk. Um, in fourth grade, a girl named Charlene told me that Jewish people howl at the moon and pray to the devil. Um, so I sort of had this um, sense of being the lone Jew in sort of a larger Gentile world and kind of knowing what it felt like to not belong. Um, and the truth is that after, you know, um, it's kind of the George Floyd was killed and there was a lot more um, understanding happening about the experiences of many people of color in this country. I read many narratives of um, black women talking about kind of being that lone person in a larger society that was not like them. Obviously, you know, I didn't have the the outward um, look that uh, identified me, but I was sort of known as the Jew. I was the only Jewish girl in my grade for most of my time in public school. Um, and so I- In I New felt Jersey, other you were the only one? 
Um, there were towns that my parents could have moved to that were more Jewish. They just did not move there. I went to Catholic mass before I went to an Orthodox shul, just to give you an idea of sort of how um, how little few Jews there were around me. Uh, my town was predominantly um, Catholic Italian and a real pride around that, you know, sort of uh, ethnicity. And I appreciated their pride. I just didn't have that sense of that sort of community for myself. I really kind of always felt like the lone Jew. We'll be back with Allison Josephs right after this. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's 
smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. So let me uh, ask you, Allison, tell me what the world has been like for you here in the United States since October 7th. Um, tell me your fear level. Tell me your, tell me what's been going on for you specifically. So um, when we were little, probably five years old, my mother sat my sisters and me down and she gave us a warning. She said, things are good today. But things were good in Germany, and things were good in Spain, and every country eventually tires of its Jews, and one day the U.S. may tire of us as well, and we may need to run. And so this is— Now, wait, um, how old were you? Probably five years old. Wow. Um, And I think this is um, sort of the experience that so many Jews grow up with, a certain knowledge that— we may never express to non-Jewish people. And so from the outside, there may be this sense of things look pretty good. In fact, I only came to sort of understand this part of my identity um, when a non-Jewish black man asked me a few years ago, there was some ongoing violence, you know, um, towards the Hasidic community from the black community. We did this program um, called Meet a Jew in the City, Make a Friend, where we put up a tent in Harlem and gave out coffee and rugelach to try to, let's have conversations, let's interact, let's stop being on different sides of the street, but let's get to know each other. This guy came by and he said, no offense, but you seem like you're doing okay. Like what persecution do Jews feel? And mm. this got me back to this point of, I've had this knowledge my whole life that we may have to run one day. Um, I summed it up as Jewish baggage is never being able to fully unpack. So I started asking people online, did you get such a talk? And not surprisingly, many Jewish people in my network reported a similar talk. Some talks included, have your passport always ready? If the person was visibly Jewish, it was you wear a baseball cap in this setting or look for the exits um, You know, if you're in this type of Jewish building. But then I realized that the talk is actually a talk that every single Jewish person gets nearly in the Passover Seder. In the Haggadah, we say every year, in every generation, our enemies rise up to destroy us. So although my mother told us this talk when we were young, and that seems like a young age to say something so heavy, we had actually been learning this message since the first time that we went to a Passover Seder. And so I think that um, to answer the question about what has the world been like since October 7th? So I grew up having nightmares about the Holocaust we learned about the Holocaust, you know, in social studies, probably starting in fifth, sixth grade. Yep. And when you're a Jewish kid, um, I think most Jewish kids go home and have nightmares afterwards about the Nazis rounding you up. And I think and the about- non-Jewish kids too. I think it, it is a terrifying concept to introduce to a child and, you know, who is going to be the oppressor and who's going to be oppressed. And I don't know that that exclusively was for Jewish people. I think that every child that is is forced to sort of face the atrocities of of uh, humans against each other uh, w- was terrorized by the truth of the Holocaust. It could be, you know, I've sort of 
I know what my experience is and what my, you know, Jewish friends have reported back. I'll tell you something else. And I'm curious if you've thought of this too. And I did actually do a, an informal poll on our social media channels. There seems to be a large percentage of Jewish people that sort of test their strengths against whatever they're experiencing. So what I mean is, let's say you're out somewhere and you're really thirsty. Mm-hmm. You put yourself into the situation of how would I have managed in a cattle car being shipped off to Auschwitz? Wow. Um, you, we came home a couple of years ago during winter break and it had snowed and I didn't have boots and we got out of the plane, you know, got our car, our Uber, and I had to walk through the front lawn that was full of snow with just low shoes. And I thought to myself, how would I have fared during the death march? And right, so, Gerda Stein, you know, the story of Gerda Stein, whose father, her father told her, um, put on your boots and it was the summer. And <laughs> she said... Daddy, I, he said, you don't disobey your father. And it was those boots that allowed her to survive the Holocaust, that hmm. she listened to him, that he didn't survive. Wow. But she survived, and she ended up marrying the American soldier who freed her concentration camp. And hmm. he went hmm. over to her and said, um, she opened, the, it was a, they were in a bicycle factory where they, where they had walked and walked and walked and they were in the bicycle factory and he opened the door and she was there and, and he, she warned him. She said, I just need you to know we're all Jews. And he said, and so am I. Hmm. And then they were married and they have very many children hmm. and they live in Arizona. And uh, all those stories, you know, haunted me as well throughout uh, my life. Now, I, I'm, I'm not claiming any comparison to the the heritage and the trauma tattoo on the cellular DNA I feel mm-hmm. of Jewish people in in our in our recent lifetime since the Holocaust um, uh, I'm I'm just uh, trying to really understand how it all went so wrong mm-hmm. since October 7th like after 9/11 the United States had so much um, goodwill from around the Mm -hmm. world because of the terrorist attack that occurred. And then uh, that didn't seem to happen after October 7th. Now, I don't know if that's because it seemed as though the response was very quick and, and, and very brutal, that it almost shook people from focusing on the 7th. Do you think that that's what occurred or... What do you no. think is the reason for that? Um, I think that there's a lot of anti-Semites that are out there. And I think that, and this goes back to kind of the media depiction of Jews sort of reinforcing this. Um, Jews are seen as privileged and powerful and wealthy and white and kind of being in control of everything. And so people kind of don't have room in their mind to see us as the oppressed and the victims. I think in the Holocaust, that's kind of like the one exception. And there's kind of this sense that that bad thing happened. And now look, Jews are everywhere. And I think that, um, look, I do work in diversity, equity, and inclusion. We founded the first and only Jewish Hollywood Bureau a couple of years ago. What we discovered was that every other minority group had been advocating for decades in Hollywood for fair and whole and nuanced depictions, and no one ever did it for the Jews. Why? Because Jews run Hollywood, because Jews have all the power, because Jews don't need any help. And so, you know, what I think really is kind of the challenge is that in the minds of so many people, 
Jews are at the top. So how could we be struggling? How could we be at the bottom? Jews have not been included in so many of these initiatives around listening to the stories of the marginalized, hearing what they're experiencing, understanding the baggage that they're carrying, how it fits into the larger tapestry of how other groups tell their stories. Um, and I think because of that, people that normally um, are attuned to, you know, being sensitive about to social the justice issues and, and exactly right. And by the way, David Bediel talks about this in Jews Don't Count. It is a masterpiece that he wrote explaining how the social justice movement left out the Jews and why we do belong in that conversation. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating dilemma to try to wrap your head around. Um, it, it really is. I know personally for me that um, my response to the Israeli response of Gaza and and all the death that's happened since then, um, you know, has has gutted me and, and millions of other people. Never mind the people there, and um, I find that the accusation of anti-Semitism is so painful to people who are not but want the want the bombing to stop. So I think the thing about unconscious bias. And I think that this is something that the black community really brought out in the last few years is that we can be good people that have good intentions and we can have so many unconscious biases sort of like written into our, I don't know, not say DNA, but sort of like experience or how we see the world that we may not realize what we believe. Let me ask you a question. Like, what was your feeling, you know, when the U.S. responded to 9-11 and, you know, uh, went to um, Afghanistan to, to get rid of Al-Qaeda. Yeah, I went on TV with no war spray painted on the back of my jacket. And I spoke to Phil Donahue about our need for clearer minds and uh, that we could not go and invade a country that did not attack us on 9-11. And I got in a lot of trouble personally and professionally, but I'm a pacifist. I'm against war. You know, I'm against the... I'm against what's going on in Gaza. I, I can't watch it. And that doesn't mean I'm anti-Semitic to me. And I, I don't like the accusation. I feel it's unfair. I feel, I feel the pain of my friends, a uh, large percentage of whom are Jewish. Uh, I feel their pain. I see their pain. I've uh, had friendships end hmm. in the last month over this, you know, over if, if, you, don't, if you don't write this, instead of ceasefire, then you're Hamas. I'm like, well, now, come on. Are you seriously going to say that to someone who says, well, maybe the response is not legal? Well, the response to the tragedy, no one denies the atrocities. Nobody denies- Well, some what- people are actually, let me actually just correct you there because there are actually people. And just in terms of you know explaining what we're going through, so what I would say is that the Holocaust nightmares of my childhood started playing out in real-time updates on social media and hearing about the beheadings and the burnings and the rapings of women where literally they said their limbs were ripped off. Um, it, it is like a level of terror and it feels like we are a small people and it feels like this is a distant cousin. That's how the Jewish people feel about each other because we are a nation. Well, you know, I would expect terror from ISIS and 
Hezbollah and Hamas, but I don't expect that behavior from Israel. Okay, so just to clarify, do you think that um, targeting civilians going into a civilian population, and they literally had lists of homes with people written in them who was going to be home on October 7th, so they would know who to be able to attack. They had a list of women that they were planning to rape. I mean, they have detailed um, records that they kept. Do you not see any difference between the specific targeting of civilians versus the trying to minimize civilian casualties by targeting Hamas? Like, do you not see any differentiation? in? Well, I don't think that there's a lot of thought given to the civilians. Okay, so, I, so what I would like to um, sort of push back on that is that Israel is doing an extraordinary amount to try to prevent civilians from being killed. Look, the reality is that I appreciate your consistency that you spoke out against the U.S. Um, you know, going to Afghanistan, because I do think that not everyone um, that's complaining about Israel's response had the same perspective um, with the U.S. And, uh, and Afghanistan. So I do appreciate that, you know, you're a pacifist through and through. Um, what the IDF does do as Hamas embeds under schools, under hospitals, and the U.S. has confirmed that they've embedded under hospitals. Um, the IDF made 20,000 phone calls to Palestinians to warn them to get out. They've hacked but into television But there's nowhere shows. for them to go, Allison. So, So, okay, so in terms of where they can go, the IDF actually made a humanitarian corridor to help Palestinians leave the area. Hamas was there with snipers actually shooting um, both Palestinians and the IDF. Um, the Hamas was also there with snipers as Palestinians were trying to leave the area. Israel is doing a humanitarian pauses every day. They've provided incubators to the hospital where um, Hamas has their- But they um, cut off food and water, Allison. They're starving people so, out. Okay, so, 10, so, so let me people. let me let me ask you a question. Did the U.S. provide food and water in Germany when we fought the Nazis? There were four million German civilians well, that, that died. Well, that was a war where there were two. There were nations against each other. This is an ideology, a terrorist group, a horrific uh, outgrowth of of the worst of humanity. It's not a a country. I mean, you know what, Israel. Unilaterally left Gaza in 2005. They left them with greenhouses. This was a beautiful built up area that Jewish people had been living in. They literally ethnically cleansed Gaza of Jews and the IDF pulled Jewish people out of Gaza in order to say, you have this land, we will help you to develop it further. We want to partner with you. And by the way, this was after five other instances of, um, you know, Palestinians being offered a two-state solution, and they rejected those every single time. In 2005, Israel unilaterally left Gaza, and they could have done anything they wanted to, and there were plenty of governments around the world that were ready to give funding, help build it up. Instead, very sadly, a majority of Palestinians voted Hamas as their government. Um, and once Hamas has power, as we both know, Hamas is not going to be giving up power. Look, my heart breaks for any innocent Palestinian that is living there under this horrific, terrifying regime, and they don't have any way to get out or get food. We'll be back with Allison Josephs right after this. Hey 
girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Since I'm not a pacifist, um, I need to just ask you a question, which is, how do you stop bad people? How do you stop Nazis and Al-Qaeda and ISIS and Hamas if you're going to take a pacifist approach? Like, literally, what are you supposed to do? Well, I don't think you can kill all of the Palestinians in order to end Hamas. 
Wait, so I didn't say that we're doing that. And just keep in mind that Israel is risking their soldiers' lives by making this into a ground war, which, as we both know, is a much more dangerous thing to do. If Israel wanted to just carpet bomb all of Gaza, this thing could be over in a few minutes. They have the firepower to do so. They are carefully going um, from, you know, building to building. Well, I I dispute that, Allison. I think that anyone watching what's going on can't claim that Israel has the moral high ground of trying to save lives in Gaza. Um, What did you have to say online when um, Hamas um, shot three rockets at the Israeli hospital um, in Ashkelon? Did you have any comments on that? Well, there are uh, all kinds of distortions coming from the media about what's happening there, including, I think, some of the ways that you've just presented your opinion of what's happening there that there's an altruistic Jewish identity that would take care of such things as innocent civilians. I believe that's who Jewish people are. That's what I believe the Torah represents. That's what I believe Jewish people are about. It's not that they are about what's happening now in Gaza, that that what's happening now, I got in trouble because I said genocide. And friends said, how could you say that? Or how could you say ceasefire? I will always say ceasefire. I will always try to save the lives of innocent people. There's no collateral damage in a war. There's just humans. So I'm not- But, who, but inter- can I ask you, who, who's to blame though? Is Hamas not to blame? There was a ceasefire on October 6th. So yes, Hamas- and I do have some questions about Netanyahu yeah. and what took six to eight hours to get there to help people in the most the most protected area in the Midwest, the most cameras and security footage per per mile, per kilometer. How did that happen? And, you know, 9-11, the United States needed a reason to get into war in the Mideast. And it seems as though Netanyahu got what he wanted on that day. Um, I mean, I think that's, no matter your opinion on uh, this man, um, this was really like, the most horrific Jewish attack in the lifetime of any, li- of any living Jew right now. And how did it happen? Yeah. How did it happen I, so, that look, there were I, eight I, breaches? Look, how so, were there eight breaches in the it, wall? So it seems like Iran was involved. It seems like Russia was involved. There was a major hacking that happened that just destabilized everything, took all eyes off of everything. They also simultaneously had rockets firing to get people to look in the wrong direction. So while they were looking where the rockets were firing, they were able to open and infiltrate the, the fence. And let me just clarify, um, Egypt has a very significant wall with Gaza. Egypt um, has blockaded Gaza and they don't allow any free passage into Gaza. Their wall is high, it's thick, it's deep into the ground because they know the Palestinians um, build tunnels. The um, the wall between Israel and Gaza is just a fence. Um, and it was no, unfortunately- No, come on. It's no, it not is. just a fence. We've Wait. seen it. It's, did you it's, not see? The, did you not see the bulldozers that just broke yes, through? That, a, in that part, I agree. They were fences. Yes, that, in that, but that part, that's the majority. That's the majority of the wall. I actually was shocked to find out that Israel did not have a wall as significant as Egypt does, um, but they do not. Like this is what I would put onto you. I, I appreciate that you want to decrease, um, you know, the loss of human life, and in a and I want to decrease the anti-Semitism that's happening, and I want Israel to realize that they're creating more terrorists every hour. 
that um, this goes on. So you know what? I think when we fought back um, at ISIS and when we fought back at Al Qaeda, unfortunately, um, these are these are extremist Islamic uh, terror groups. They're, these are not Muslims. This is a certain radical ideology. And mm. unfortunately, I think the only way to defeat them is to destroy them. For any innocent, I, I'm talking about the terrorists. Not the people. If, if you, I mean, the head of Hamas said right after October 7th, they'll do another one and another one and another one. Their goal is to annihilate every single Jew in Israel. And they've also called for global jihad and an intifada all over the world, which There's means. There's no that- argument that they are the worst of the worst in terms of terrorist groups and, and something about their life and their history of being as Jimmy Carter said, an apartheid state, being in an apartheid situation when he wrote that book and he got in so much trouble, Jimmy Carter. Tell tell me what's an apartheid state about Israel. How how would you describe that? What do you mean by that? Well, I was shocked when I went there to find out that there was not free passage, that there were separate roads that that uh, Palestinians had to walk on and roads that Israelis got to walk on. And- I, I've been to Israel. I've lived in Israel. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. There are no separate roads for Palestinians. In fact, there are 130,000 Palestinians that have work permits that go to Israel every day. Um, so Israel so has- you don't think that how Israel has treated the Palestinians is an apartheid-type government? Um, so let's just separate things into two different categories. There's Israeli Arabs, two million Israeli Arabs that live in Israel proper. They're full citizens. Um, They are in the Supreme Court. Um, They are CEOs of major banks. They're uh, television, um, you know, uh, hosts. I mean, doctors, lawyers, you name it. They go to the universities. Um, Let's contrast that to the fact that there are basically no Jews in any other Middle Eastern Muslim countries. In fact, 850,000 Jews were ethnically cleansed from pretty much every other Middle East and North African country in the I'm 40s aware and 50s. So, so just to say those countries don't have Jews living there um, and they don't you know, have full well, rights or freedom. Well, apartheid doesn't mean they don't live there. It means right, right. that there's an oppressive government that uh, penalizes one race over the other and feels okay, so, this- so Jews for the few Jews that are left in these places they cannot live safely and comfortably it, it is certainly um, a, a scary and terrifying way to be one of the lone Jews left in Iraq or Iran that sort of a thing so I think in terms of the Israeli Arabs um, they have full citizenship they um, have they're, they have you know made success in um, many of their careers. Then there's the separate issue of Palestinians. Um, Israel has offered, or sort of the world, the UN, different entities have offered Palestinians their own state on five occasions. Um, in 2000, um, Bill Clinton sat down with um, Arafat, um, and you know he was basically offered ninety-four um, percent of the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem. Um, Bill Clinton said that Arafat said no 14 times in two weeks and never once asked for a counter offer. Five years, eight years later, Ehud Almart sat down with uh, Mohammed Abbas um, to offer even more land, um, and he still said no. Instead of giving a counter offer, they came back with violence. And mm-hmm. in the middle of that, Israel unilaterally left Gaza 
and again, gave them a piece of land that they could have turned into Palestine and could have built up and could have taken care of their citizens. That was the dream. Your average Israeli and your average Jew wants a two-state solution. The problem is that when over and over again, you offer a two-state solution and what they say again, and they're saying this at marches, they want a one-state solution. And a one-state solution means the death of Jews, the end of Jews. And when you see these protesters, and I've seen a bunch of videos online where they say, where should the Jews go? They say Jews should go to hell. So, you know, I think if there are people that you can work with and both sides are saying they want but a two-state solution. De- you can't demonize a people. No, I'm not saying a people. I'm, I'm mentioning the leaders. The, the leadership has rejected Well, just as though Netanyahu doesn't represent the vast majority of Jewish people in Israel. I don't think that Hamas represents the Palestinian people. Or the Palestinian Authority. Look, between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, just a few months ago, the people of Gaza were polled and 88% said they would vote for Hamas or the Palestinian Authority. Both, um, you know, are So it's kind of what I'm hearing, Allison, and, and this is why it's so depressing to me, is what I'm hearing from Jewish friends who I love who I have been friends with for many, many, many years, is there's nothing we can do. We have to do this. There's justification so, for a genocide. And I know um, that's a word that, that infuriates people, but it's so hard to witness it, to watch it, and to think what those horrible people did on the 7th is, you know, we're going to out-evil them by what— Wait, so was, was um, defeating the Nazis genocide of Germany— no, defeating the Nazis was not because we didn't go and try to kill innocent people when we were yeah, there. Four, we killed the million, Nazis. Yeah, but four million civilians died in Germany during World War II. Yes, Foreign during war. World War, yes. But this, but this is a war, though. This is a, they, well, it's not start, between two countries. It's between I mean, one very, very militarized country so, and a group of oppressed people. So here's the thing that I'm going to— say with kindness and with respect. I think when you describe the power of Israel, those powerful Jews, I think unknowingly you are stepping into an anti-Semitic trope, which I don't blame you for because I really do believe you have a kind heart and you love your Jewish friends. But I do think that when you view the Palestinians as the oppressed people and the big, bad, powerful Jew on the other side, I really do think that that is um, an ancient anti-Semitic trope of the powerful Jews. We'll be back with Allison Josephs right after this. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do find this missing girlfriend and tell her story with the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one like my producer Anna oh my god my friend Dr. Mindy Shapiro hi it's Dr. Shapiro and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner and of course Gail's sister Elaine Katz having no closure it kills you 
join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. During Passover, when we talk about the 10 plagues, um, we take 10 drops of wine out of our cup because even though the Egyptians enslaved us for 210 years, um, Jewish values um, implore us to feel even the pain of our enemies. And so, again, I can't speak for every single Israeli, but what I will tell you is that when an Israeli Jewish person commits a crime, they go to jail. There is, it's a democracy and there are consequences. Um, there is no democracy um, right now under Hamas's rule. Um, and I think, you know, I think the reason your Jewish friends are reacting so strongly is because there is no moral equivalence between a terror organization whose stated mission is to annihilate all Jews and um, an army of a sovereign democratic nation who is simply trying to protect its citizens from getting hacked up, like literally like children with their arms cut off, bleeding to death. You can't say that, Allison, when when we see babies' arms being pulled from the rubble every day. So how can you, how can we, we not? This is which, what I would love which to Which evil is worse? Um, I think the evil that targets innocence is for sure worse. What I would love to see as a solution is have Egypt open its border 
um, have a temporary, um, you know, time and place for Palestinians to make a safe exit out. Let Israel do its job to finish off Hamas because it will protect not only Jews, but anyone in the world who is peace loving and has liberal values. Um, you know, we are we are living in basically the worst case scenario. Like we're not at the gas chambers yet, Rosie, but like um people the day after October seventh, my husband went to um the train station, Penn Station, and there was a rally celebrating. Israel had not done any response yet, and there was simply a celebration of Hamas supporters that were out there in well, this shame, country. Shame on them. It's um shame on their soul. You know. This is and this is happening all over the world. Um, and look, uh, we all want peace. We pray for peace three times a day as Jewish people, and we see that as a peace, a worldwide peace. But we will not sit back and be killed, and we will not be defenseless Jews. And that's my message. Hmm. Well, you know what, Allison, I've admired you and how you speak up for for your people and what you believe, and I uh, have loved engaging with you and. You know, I, I am deeply troubled, as many millions of people are across the world, by what's happening. And um, it's, uh, it's really so unbearably depressing to me that it's, it's uh, hard to function. And instead of saying things that I believe on, on the internet, because, you know, the serenity prayer, the wisdom to know the difference, the things you can change and the things you can't change. There's nothing that a hashtag is going to change in this, you know, a biblical uh, problem. That's, that's, it's, 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 it's not going to change. So I've been resorting to doing videos about my squirrels because I can't, <laughs> uh, I can't bear it, Allison. The truth is I can't bear it. Just like your soul was crushed at eight years old and your spirit opened up. I think, you know, um, my soul was crushed as well by by war and by having to visualize it and and then the the people all over the world who do have power the television industry they decided we're not going to show war anymore because it upsets the masses too much you know like your father like your exactly. father's message to you and and now you know uh, we get it in our handheld devices and it's it's. It's too much. It's too harrowing. And, you know, I grew up a Catholic kid where nobody said, I love you. And nobody uh, was very mishbuka or, you know, and I went over to Lori Shackner's house and her mother kissed me on both cheeks and my mom had just died and, hmm. and hugged me and they had a shag rug and leather couches. And I have held uh, Jewish people in, in very high regard in my life, almost as a goal of something to want to be. I've loved my kids, I think, like a Jewish mother loves her children. And I learned it from watching the, the hmm. families on Long Island and, and um, you know, to be called anti-Semitic. My, my son had a bris performed by a moil. I am not anti-Semitic. And to be accused of it by people that you love is, uh, is unbearably painful. It's such a horrific thing to accuse someone of, especially when that's not the truth for them. I very much um, respect your position, and I really do believe you're coming from a good place. So I will give you my stamp of approval from that place. Oh, well, the I one, thank you. I'll take it. I'll what, take it. But what what I would, um, I guess, just have you and any of your listeners just sort of consider, examine, is that um, we don't have 
we don't want to die again. Basically, we don't want another October 7th um, if the world would partner with Israel and take in refugees so we could just get rid of the people that are vowing to come in and massacre us over and over again. Israel would take it in a heartbeat. Um, this is, they're literally trying to do whatever they can. And I know you say that you doubt that. Um, I, no, I don't, I, I don't doubt that. It just, it sure doesn't look like it from this point of view. You know what? War is a horrible thing. I think nobody is going to downplay how horrific war is. This is not a world that Israel wanted. The people that Hamas attacked in that rave, in that festival, those were the peace lovers. They got a woman that spent her life building bridges and seeing the best in humanity. And like, it didn't matter. And like, I would say that's, you know, maybe some of the worst of this, that the people that wanted to sort of have that vision of how we all live together and understand each other. Hamas is just like in a whole different universe right now. And while they walk the earth, we are all in danger. And I think really like what the goal is. And when I speak about the Israeli army, like I don't, you've met Jewish men before. We're not necessarily like the Rambo macho type. Like these are mostly like family guys that are going home and just want to, I don't know, not be fighting. They're doing this so that their wives and children don't end up like hacked up and, and, you know, gang raped. Um, it's really like, I know you don't like the outcome and neither do I, but to not do anything could mean the annihilation of the Jewish people. So if any countries want to get involved to take in refugees, open the corridor in Egypt, let Palestinians get a safe, you know, exit away so Israel can eradicate Hamas, that is the goal. I have a ton of Israeli family. They are terrified, um, and they're also resolute that we're not going to have another Holocaust. We will defend ourselves, and we won't be ashamed of defending ourselves. Okay, and, and don't be ashamed when some people don't understand, because it's hard to understand sometimes. You know, nobody wants that. Nobody wants another Holocaust. Nobody wants another, um, you know, nobody wants anti-rampant anti-Semitism that's occurring in college campuses all over the world. And, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it feels like the end of the world to me. And um, that's, that's the most depressing part of it. So I will say as a person of faith, um, yeah. In the Jewish tradition, we have this concept of Yemos HaMashiach, of, you know, of a messianic era where there will be world peace and nations will, you know, lie down their swords and turn their uh, swords into plowshares. And it is sometimes hard to picture how that could happen. And yet what I'll tell you is that I have felt more unity and sort of brotherhood um, with fellow Jews in a way that I've never felt in my life before. That is one mm. of the signs that Jewish tradition says will happen before these days of peace, worldwide peace. So I'm I'm continuing to pray and to well, hope. Well, I'm and- for worldwide peace too, Allison. That's my whole goal. And and the end of uh the end of this because it's it's so unbearably painful. As I'll every give, Jew I will give knows. that an amen. I'll give that an amen. I will give it one as well. Shalom to you and to all of Israel and to all of its people. I don't want anyone killed. I don't want anyone uh, terrorized. And um, I thank you for being here. This is, you know, a conversation that I think is going to happen a lot of Thanksgiving homes. And and um, let's hope that that we can have conversations like this one where no one accuses someone or yells at someone or you know, debases them. And, and, and then hopefully that's the path that we'll go down together 
walking together to find peace in this world, finally, you know. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for the platform to do it. You're more than welcome. Uh, We're not going to take any questions today. I just wanted to offer this conversation, which maybe will bring some, some solace. This Thursday is Thanksgiving. Be with your tribe, your blood, your family, your chosen family, your friends and loved ones. Find some peace with each other if you can. And I'll see you back on December 5th with one of the most fabulous humans around, Murray Hill. Till then, people, onward. Friends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.